0: When it comes to studying God's word, context is always king. And with context being king, the queen of good Bible study is humility. Trying to understand what God has to say to us. And perhaps if we disagree on certain issues with other believers that we remember context is king and it helps us to understand God's word and humility is a queen principle when it comes to Bible study and understanding what God has taught us. In our Sunday school class I've started teaching, um, the adult class we're going through, the book of Revelation, and we read the whole first half of the book this morning, we'll read the second half, chapters 12 to 22 next Sunday morning, it's kind of a preview, come with us, be a part of our adult Sunday school class as we read the book of Revelation. Now are there some things that are non-negotiables, like whistling when you talk, sometimes it just happens, you don't really know why, I don't think I'm missing any teeth, my daughter is, but not me. But anyway, um, this is one thing I will not back down on, and I will take a stance, and you will say something otherwise, especially Tommy and those of you that are like him, because I said this, but I'm going to say it anyway. It is revelation, singular. It is not revelations. Revelations, if you say that, it is wrong, but I'll be humble in telling you that, right? (laughs) Because... Anyway, it is the revelation of Jesus to John as he is exiled at the end of his life on the island of Patmos for what? Well, for believing in Jesus like you and I do. It is not John's revelation. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ to John, who at the end of his life, being the only disciple whose life was not ended early because of his belief in genuine pursuit of holiness to be like Jesus. John lived probably until his 80s, where all the other apostles were martyred or killed early. Now, John suffered because of his faith, yet he lived to tell this tale, to have this picture of the throne room in heaven being put before him. And the book of Revelation tells us that John was able to see this vision because on the first day of the week that he was filled with the Spirit. He, as you and I have done this morning, was worshiping God and it's through that context that God spoke to him and transformed John and allowed him to see this image that became the book of Revelation, that culminates the story of God in our text, in the Bible. God in his word begins in the garden in Genesis and he ends in the garden in Revelation and the story in between is where you and I find ourselves. And honestly, you want to see me squirm, cunnabas kind of Sunday School? You're going to, we're going to read some stuff. And then in a couple of weeks, I'm actually going to let you ask some questions. And on some of these things, I'm just going to go, you know what? Y'all, I don't know. I don't know. But a lot of what we find, it's not a salvation issue that we read if we disagree about how to interpret certain things because some things could go this way or that way. Not what it's called, the revelation. No argument there. No good ones, anyway. But what we will find is that we will be humble in what we understand and what God tells us and the pictures that God makes clear through his book. What we will see in the book of Revelation, what I want to paint for you today, verbally, not artistically, because it would look really bad if I got out something and tried to do that, but verbally paint for you this picture of these three images that we get of Jesus in the book of Revelation. From Revelation chapter one, Revelation chapter five and Revelation chapter 19, we have these images of Jesus, these titles that we get of Jesus that are fundamental, that drive the narrative of this story of the revelation of Jesus of this last book of our New Testament. that we see Jesus in the center stage of everything as He always is along with God the Father in the sevenfold spirit, Revelation 1:46, and read along with that. Jesus is with the Father. He is with the Spirit as this is presented. And these titles of Jesus that we are given, these portraits, these snapshots we get of Jesus reigning on his throne are Jesus as a faithful witness in Revelation 1, as the firstborn of the dead in Revelation chapter 5 and of the ruler of the kings of the earth in Revelation chapter 19. This picture of the colossal high priest in chapter 1 is Jesus as the faithful witness to the seven churches. In the book of Revelation, what we do most often, we don't count the numbers, we weigh the significance. The number seven is a number that represents totality and completion The seventh day the Lord rested. Why? Because his creation was complete. So throughout the biblical narrative, throughout scripture, when we have this seven represented, yeah, it may be talking about actual seven days because there are seven days in creation. But what these seven churches are representing, the totality, all of the churches, not just in these seven cities in Asia Minor that John writes to in Revelation chapter two and three, these churches and cities like Philadelphia and Laodicea and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis. But it's representative of all of the church everywhere. So when Jesus writes these letters to the churches, the seven churches, that's to them, but that's also to us. And with context being king and how we understand God and his word, these letters to the seven churches must first and primarily apply to the people living in the first century in Asia Minor that lived in those cities. That is our first understanding of Revelation 2 and 3. And it is from that we, we can, and only from that, we, that we can properly draw any further meaning to us today as Christians living in whatever century it is that we live. It must first determine what it means before we can know, or we must determine what it meant before we know what it means. And in the book of Revelation, it starts out this way the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things which must soon take place. And he made it known to his servant John by sending angels to him. And so at the very beginning of Revelation, it starts with Jesus the revelation of Jesus. And at the end, as the curtain closes on this story, Revelation 22, verse 20, Come, Lord Jesus. So at the very beginning and at the very end, and everywhere in between, our focus is on Christ and what he has done and what he will accomplish. So don't be too distracted by the things, the images, the beasts, and the horns, and the trumpets, and the bowls and the seals, and the plagues, and the death, and the bloodshed, and the tribulation, and the battle, and the Antichrist. Wait, that's not there. We want to talk about the Antichrist, we've got to study John's epistles, not Revelation. So we won't be talking about an Antichrist or the Antichrist in the book of Revelation. Why? Because it's not there. These pictures of Jesus as the faithful witness, as the slain lamb, and as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Revelation chapter 1, Jesus as the heavenly high priest, starting in verse 12. Then I turned to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, clothed in a long robe with a golden sash around his chest, and the hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame on fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like that of the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and from his face shone the light shone was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, "Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I live forevermore. I have the keys of death and Haiti. right therefore, these things that you have seen that those that those that are, and those that will take place after this. For as the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, y'all, we don't have to guess a lot of times. Very often, it tells us exactly what Jesus is talking about. For as the mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels in the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. A change of the preposition there. The seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So if you hear any crazy interpretation in the book of Revelation, if anybody tells you that these seven lampstands and these seven stars stand for something other than what Jesus clearly said that they stand for in John's vision, well, you know you're working with somebody who maybe not intentionally, but they're twisting God and his Word. John will go on to tell us in Revelation, he says, "Blesses is the one who receives this revelation, who receives this prophecy and understands it and talks about it. Now, there's some things that are ambiguous when it comes to us reading the book of Revelation. The, who the lampstands, what the lampstands represent and what the angels represent, or their swords, are not one of them. Okay. This first portrait that we have of Jesus serving as the faithful witness, this heavenly high priest, is so powerful that if you look back at verse 17, what does it do to John? This picture of Jesus is so strong that it strikes him down on the floor as if he is dead because the image of Jesus is so powerful. Think about this. When people ask you, who are the most, some of the most powerful people that you know? Well, who would you say? Would you talk about athletes? Would you talk about Politicians? Would you talk about teachers? Would you talk about bodybuilders? Would you talk about military kings? The most powerful and fearsome person that I know is Jesus. Maybe that's not what comes to mind right away, but that is what God is. In fact, that's why Proverbs, it's not a misprint in chapter one and chapter nine where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge and understanding. We are to have this healthy, reverent fear of God for he is holy and he is good and he is just. Yeah, I must have this healthy fear. I'm not afraid of him, but I have this healthy fear of God for who he is. And because of that, what I am supposed to do This language, this one like the Son of Man who comes, that's how Jesus is described. In fact, it's his favorite way to describe himself. And in the Old Testament and in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, we have this phrase, the Son of Man used a lot, yet outside of those. In Scripture, it's only used four times. It's used in Acts, it's used in Hebrews, I think, and it's used twice in Revelation. So yet we have this Son of Man language used a lot, What's it talking about? For for the most part, it's describing a person, and it's talking about the frailty that humans have. So we have this picture that we get of Jesus. He is fully God and fully man, which my brain can't quite comprehend. Yet we have this moniker of Jesus that he is one coming like a son of man, and that's an image that comes directly out of the book of Daniel chapter 7. Or read a couple of verses out of there for you. And for us, as a side note, most of the things that seem kind of crazy and what in the world was John talking about in the book of Revelation comes directly from the Old Testament. Whether a direct, direct quotation or an allusion, it's a reference to, without directly quoting the stories and the things from the Old Testament, comes right from the Old Testament. In fact, the book of Revelation in the New Testament is the one that is most contingent on a proper understanding of the Old to you know what in the world John's talking about. And a lot of the time, some of the crazy things that we read and we go, I have zero idea what that's talking about. Well, that's true because I forget because I haven't read Zechariah in a while, if ever, right? (laughs) Okay. A proper understanding of the Old Testament will clear up a lot of these strange images because John is already in prison for what he believes. And he wants to be able to interpret and to share this image of heaven with God and with his people. So he's speaking in languages that'll confuse the Romans, but be crystal clear to the people of God. And that only properly happens when we understand the Old Testament. So Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 and following, Daniel says this, I looked as the thrones were placed, and the ancient of days, that is God, took his seat. His cloth was as white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were like burning fire, and a stream of fire issued, and it came out before him a thousand a thousand thousands served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him, and a court sat in judgment for the books were open. Now, there's some repetition from here into this image that we get in Revelation. If you're with us in Sunday school, you're going to hear this repetition because the Old Testament repeats itself a lot. We get bored when people repeat themselves we they get to the point. But God repeats things when we need to know what they say. Going down a couple more verses in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him, and to him he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him, and that his dominion, an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. He and the kingdom are one, and they shall not be destroyed. So what John does is he pulls regular, ordinary language that the people of God would have known when he's describing Jesus, when Jesus describes himself, that there's one like a son of man who's approaching the ancient of days. What do we have? Well, we have Revelation 4 and 5. We have this throne room in heaven and God is there and Jesus is right there with God reigning beside him and reigning supreme. Some of the descriptions that you and I get of Jesus in the book of Revelation, his his picture, this rider on this white horse, is his double-edged sword that's coming out of his mouth, his white, his hair is white, it looks like wool. Well, that's the description that Daniel attributes in this vision that God gave him to the ancient of days to God. So we have Jesus as this son of man, which represents the frailty of humans and what we have and how we fall short. Yet we also have, and it's the only time as well, that these attributes in scripture are described to someone else. Someone having hair that is white, that having the stars in his hand, that is the first and the last, that is the alpha and the omega. That this son of man, is Revelation chapter five paints this picture, this lamb that looks as if it was slain, Is described with the same attributes that are described Jehovah, Yahweh, God our Father. The crucified Lamb of Revelation, this is the second portrait. So we have Jesus as the faithful witness in Revelation 1. And really, this section is just a snapshot, it's a couple verses from Revelation chapter 5, um, verses 5 and 6. And these images of Jesus help us to understand everything that is going on in the book. Revelation 5, 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the elders are talking to John. These are the elders that are surrounding the throne room in heaven. One of the elders said to me, weep no more. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Both Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5 paint a similar picture. I know I haven't read all of that. I know this is a ton of information. But they paint a similar picture of John in the throne room of heaven looking to the throne and God is seated on it and there's four living creatures and they're surrounded by 24 elders. And what do they do? They fall down along with all creation and they worship Yahweh God and they worship the Lamb. What John is doing is that he's putting an equal sign between God the Father and God the Son, between Jehovah God and between this slain Lamb. Yet it's standing. Now, that sounds pretty normal to those of us that have been around the church for a while, but to the Jew, to the Roman, it would have been scandalous. To equate someone, this man, as be having equality with God would have been blasphemous. And to the Romans, who were very proud of their emperor and they had this uh, growing emperor cult worship that happened, you're going to equate somebody else with being God that's not Caesar? How dare you? Do you want to die? Yet to us, it sounds kind of commonplace. In these images, this crucified lamb where it talks about the throne, that the throne belongs to Yahweh, but it's shared by Jesus. Yahweh is the name that the Israelites would not even mention of God. It's a name that we have in the Bible where if you're reading the text from your scripture, and if the word Lord, L-O-R-D, is in all capital letters, depending on your translation, it is this translation of this word Yahweh that the Israelites wouldn't even mention. And honestly, we don't know how to say it Because Hebrew is crazy, and they didn't have vowels for a long time with their punctuation. And how do you know how to pronounce a word that a language where the people didn't say it? So that's their best pronunciation. It's probably pretty close. Yet Yahweh God and the throne that he sits on are shared by Jesus. In fact, Jesus stands in the midst of the throne. He is not there by accident. He is there where he belongs. He's there standing before the throne, and that's exactly the way that the very first Christian martyr Stephen saw him in the book of Acts chapter 7. What happens is that Stephen is called before people, and he is a faithful man full of the Holy Spirit that Acts chapter 6 describes Stephen as. And then he is brought before this council of religious leaders, and they say, well, what's your problem? Why are you causing all this ruckus? And he goes on to give this articulate, immaculate, beautiful picture of what happened in the Old Testament. It's this speech where he says, y'all done messed up, and here's why, and you killed Jesus. And their response was, okay, now you're dead. And they killed him, what Scripture tells us in Acts chapter 7 verse 56 tells us as much, that Stephen, as he is dying for his proclamation of who Jesus is and where he is reigning, he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing before the throne of God. And it's that same image that Acts chapter 7 and Revelation chapter 5 point us back to Daniel 7 where there's the Ancient of Days and he is on his throne and he is reigning. And there's this one like a son of man who is there with him. Are you getting the picture? It's not the first time that we've heard any of this stuff because if we had no other context, if we didn't have Acts, if we didn't have Daniel, if we didn't have the Old Testament, honestly, the book of Revelation would be a hot, hot, hot mess and we wouldn't really be able to do anything with it. Now, there's a danger when it comes to the book of Revelation. We can either focus on it hyper way too much and exclude the rest of Scripture, or we can just write it off. I'm not an amillennialist or a, 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 a pre-trib or a post-trib. One of my Bible professors said, he says, I'm a, I'm a panmillennialist. Pan-millennial, It'll pan out in the end. <laughs> Or I'm a pro-millennialist. I'm for it. You know, some people will argue in Christians with each other about one way or the other. And honestly, some of the conclusions they come up with, I can't wrap my head around with how they get there. But a lot of times that's not a salvation issue. So let's let's be friendly. Let's be humble as we approach those things. Unless I say revelations, then tear them apart, okay? (laughs) All right. I'm sorry if you say it that way. Uh, We'll fix you. It's all right. But also what happens here there's this image of this two-sided scroll that happens where in this throne room and that there's these blood stains that are on the lamb and honestly the book of revelation sounds pretty gruesome because when you read it a lot there's bloodshed it's all over the place that so there's stain but almost exclusively the blood that is mentioned in the book of revelation is on the lamb it is his blood Jesus is not a bloody warrior he is a bloodied one He is one who has been sacrificed, and some of the other blood that we read about, if it's not Jesus, it's the blood of his followers who has been shed because of their deep faith in Jesus and their conviction to follow after Jesus with all that he has. There's these songs of the elders. Revelation 4 and 5 tell us that there are these thrones, and there's 24 elders that are around these thrones, and they're singing songs both to Yahweh and to whom? The Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. He is the only one that is worthy to open the scroll that we could read and talk about a little bit more. But Jesus, is slain man, lamb, and Jesus, or God, Yahweh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you're going to choose a mascot for your schools, in fact, we have one here in town. It's the Central Lions, and it's the Carrollton City Lambs, right? Ooh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. You would never choose a lamb as your mascot. You're going to strike fear into the hearts of, no. But what we have is the lion and the lamb reigning together, and both are worthy of praise, and they're going to be praised. In fact, this specific word for lamb is used 31 times in the New Testament, and 30 of those are in the book of Revelation. It all starts right here in Revelation chapter 5, where it says Jesus is this slain lamb in every instance, except for one, is talking about Jesus. And the only time it's not, it's in Revelation chapter 13, when the beast is trying to imitate the lamb to trick his followers into following things that aren't true. No other title for Jesus in Revelation or Scripture comes close to prominence or dominance than the lamb that was slain. And the power that Jesus has not comes from his might, but it comes from what we would attribute as his weakness, his willingness to lay himself down and to be killed. See, the weakness of the lamb is his power. It's the blood of his martyrdom that makes him the victorious savior of the saints. Jesus as the faithful witness, Jesus as the... uh, Slain lamb, and then Revelation 19 as Jesus as the rider on the white horse, or the picture we get as the conquering king of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, we skipped all the crazy stuff about beasts and um, other things that we'll talk about later. We have this image as this is this, the apocalypse, this view of Jesus is wrapping up. Revelation 19, 11, and following it says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. Have you heard that before? on his head are many diadems and he has a name written on them that no one knows himself he is clothed in a robe that is dipped in blood by the name in which he is called the word of god and the armies of heaven rallied in fine lemon white and pure were following him on white horses for from his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword we've heard that before too which to which he will strike down the nations and he will rule them with our iron rod he will tread the wine presses of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. To state it very delicately, Roman, Romans, Revelation chapter 19 verse 15 is pretty explicit in the picture that it gets of the enemies of God's people being trampled under the feet of this conquering king. Uh, Jesus comes riding in on this white horse and a robe that is bloodstained from battle, but yet it's clean as white linen. He's an iron scepter in his hand, and from his mouth comes a double-edged sword. Uh, when you think of a mighty warrior, who do you think of? Well, hopefully now we think of Jesus because Proverbs 1, seven and Proverbs 9.10 aren't misprints. A healthy fear of the God is indeed necessary. The emphasis of the wedding feast in, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 6 to 9, is not on the destruction of God's enemies, but it's on the rescue of God's people. This feast right before that, Revelation 19, 6 to 9, says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult. Let us give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen, white and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. These pictures that we get, these portraits of Jesus, help us understand the book of Revelation. And when you take your eyes off of them, the rest of it is going to be a mess. And it's going to be difficult to understand and even more difficult, I think, to live out. These portraits of Jesus, each one of them comes before a great trial or tribulation. The high priest stands before the churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and each of these churches are under duress. They're in trouble, mostly because of their own doing, their own shortcoming, their own sin. And they've got to fix their eyes on Jesus if they're going to describe, if they're going to survive the evil one. The lamb must stand before the great tribulation when all. All of hell breaks loose. And in order to survive the dragon, the saints must look to what? The lamb. Because the dragon is fearful, but not when you have the lamb in your sight. Our survival and our triumph are directly related to the witness of the slain Savior. And finally, in this battle before the King of Kings, where Jesus comes riding in on this white horse with this sword coming from his mouth, the word of truth that he is victorious and that the beast is bound in chapter 20 and it's let out again for a short time to wreak havoc on who? On those who don't have their eyes fixed on the lamb. These images, the faithful witness, the slain lamb, the rider on the white horse, drive the story in Revelation. They're foundational images that John offers a church in crisis. Now, perhaps it has varied in its severity over the centuries, but the church of God is in crisis. Not because of God or his promises or any less true. God's not doing what he needs to do, but it's crisis because life and death hangs in the balance. And that when we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we can see clearly, that we can know what God has called for us to do. In fact, the best way that I can describe the book of Revelation is that it is a discipleship manual. It is for how we as the church are to live today in the face of persecution, in the face of people who don't want other people to know about Jesus, who want us to keep our mouth shut and to stay busy and to not actually invest in others the truth of the Word of God. The book of Revelation is a manual for how we are to live in the face of evil, in the face of the enemy,